Well, this will come as no surprise to most of you, but your pastors pray for you. We pray for you. The pastoral prayer, obviously, which Jackie just prayed, happens at every one of our services, but there are other times throughout the week when we pastors gather, we collect the prayer requests of the congregation, and we pray for you. Beyond that, as most of you know, you email us, you text us, you give us handwritten notes. In fact, just this morning, I walked into my office here at church, and there's a handwritten note, Pastor, will you pray for my friend who has cancer that it won't be as bad of a diagnosis as we think it might be? We pray for you. When we see you in the grocery store aisle or on the sideline of a sporting event, we pray for you. I wish they had told me in seminary how much praying was involved in being a pastor. I actually am glad they didn't because it's a delight. It's such a joy. We fall asleep praying for you. We wake up praying for you. I was so touched a moment ago when Dave Bennett was giving his announcement for the prayer vigil when he said that you all pray for the pastors. We know that, and we receive that, and we love that. Is there power? Is there effectiveness? In a pastoral prayer, I see many of you nodding your head, yes. Well, that idea has actually come under attack a little bit in our culture recently. I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon, but a lot of people are saying, stop saying you're sending your thoughts and prayers. Have you seen this happening? A tragedy happens, one more politician puts it on his Twitter feed, thoughts and prayers. And now we have people marching in the streets with signs that say, keep your thoughts and prayers. We want action. And I understand why people are saying that, but the question is before us, is there power in a pastoral prayer? Our reading for today, the one that we just had read for us that we're going to study this morning, is a pastoral prayer written by the Apostle Paul to the early church at Ephesus. The reading begins with, I bow my knees, and it ends with, amen. It's a pastoral prayer. And we will see as we dive into it together that it has power, that it conveys power, and it has instruction. It's a pastoral prayer, but it's part of a letter that was read to a church, and it instructs the church on what a church ought to be. That's part of the power of a pastoral prayer. It instructs us what the church ought to be. And as we look at it together today, we will see, we will learn, Stanwich Church, about what kind of church we ought to be in light of this pastoral prayer. So let's look at it together today. It's Ephesians 3, verse 14. If you've put your Bible away, I would encourage you to pull it back out. We're going to look at these verses together. The very first phrase Paul says in this prayer is, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. I have to stop us already and ask the question, what is he referring to when he says, for this reason? Usually when that happens in Scripture, you want to back up a beat and see what happened before that. In this case, we have to go back to Ephesians 2, verse 22, where he says, In Him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Him, you also are being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. What's he saying here? Paul is writing a letter. He's giving a prayer, not just to an individual, but to a church. 
You are being constructed together, he says, as a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. We can almost picture the temple in Jerusalem, which was a dwelling place for the presence of God constructed out of large stones. Well, now Paul is saying to the early church, God's dwelling place is not just in a, in a, in a place filled with um, stones, built by stones, but built by you, built by people. We are the dwelling place for God now, not just the temple. We are like living stones collectively as a church built together as the dwelling place of God. Now, our English language is a little bit limited. And here in the Northeast, we're particularly handicapped at understanding a note like this. Because when we read a a letter like this, like Ephesians, we are so quick to individualize it. We do this so often when we read the Bible. This is speaking to me. It's actually a a letter written to a church. I wish we could say like y'all, like they say in the South, (laughs) that y'all are becoming a dwelling place or maybe yous guys like, you know, in Brooklyn (laughs) or Ewins, I think that's Pennsylvania. Or where I grew up, you guys, that's what we would say for the plural. When we read the word you in this pastoral prayer, it's most often the plural, okay? So let's not try to think about this as God's word to me individually in a silo on my own, but us collectively as a church, Stanwich Church, that we are being built together like those stones to become a dwelling place for God. So let's hear this as a pastoral prayer for us, okay? Now let's continue. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family is named. What's going on here? We have to look at the Greek to understand. There's a little bit of a play on words going on here because the word for family and the word for father sound very similar in the Greek. The word for father is patera. The word for um, family is patria. So Paul's getting a little bit poetic here. He's saying if you belong to the father, you're in the family. He's helping speak to our identity as people who belong to the church. We belong to the Father. We're the family. We're the patria of the patera. Do you hear the poetry in that? He's hearkening back, probably, to chapter 1 of Ephesians. Pastor David preached on this powerfully two Sundays ago, where he talked about if we belong in the church, we've been adopted. Do you remember this sermon? Sin has left us exposed. It's left us isolated and alone. We can't help ourselves like a baby who's been left out the city gates. But God, the Father, has scooped us up and collected us and makes us his own. We belong in his family. We are adopted into the family of the Father. This changes our whole identity. Pastor David preached that Sunday about how when people are adopted, when they've been abandoned by their original family, when sin has done that to us and we've been adopted into a new family, well, understandably, we might have some trust issues, right? Our old family left us to die and we're now in a new family. We might be wondering, is our new father good? Is our father good? Will he take care of me? Does he have my best interest in mind if I belong to this new household? Is this good for me? And the answer is right here in the text. We have a good 
Father. We know this, as it says here in the prayer, because our Father is generous. He's generous to us. Let's continue the reading now in verse 16. Pay attention to the generosity of God. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you, y'all, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. According to the riches of His glory. That's the title of today's sermon, The Riches of His Glory. We're in the middle of a four-week sermon series we're calling Generous Gospel. We're looking at four chapters in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We looked at the riches of His grace, chapter 2, the riches of His mercy today, the riches of His glory, and next Sunday, the riches of His gifts. The riches of His glory is what we look at today. I don't even know how to preach about that. The riches of His glory, the unimaginable, immeasurable glory of God, we have no idea. We think of glory, we think of somebody famous who gets glory. You know, so often in human institutions, it's a scramble for glory. Who's going to get the glory here? I remember high school, do you? Who's going to get the glory on the sports field today? Who's going to get the glory? Who's going to be number one in the class? Who's going to get the glory? Who's going to get the glory in the social scene, at this party? But here it says, in God's household, in the church, we gaze upon, we worship, we wonder about the riches of His glory. He gets all the glory. He has all the glory, unimaginable, unspeakable glory. We're just messing around with glory when we compare ourselves to each other. Who's going to get the glory here? C.S. Lewis says we are far too easily pleased. We're like children wanting to go on playing with mud pies in the slum because we cannot imagine the offer of a holiday at the sea. The glory of God And it's accessible to us if we are in the household. He doesn't keep it all for himself. He starts doling generosity out of his glory, that the riches of his glory, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being. That's what happens in the equation. He gets the glory and he gives us strength and power by the spirit in our inner being. Look how generous he is. That's what the offer is to us. He gives us strength with power through His Spirit in our inner being. That's the heartbeat of our church. That's the strength of our church is His Holy Spirit. Speaking of heartbeats, I know personally what it's like to have a strong heartbeat and to have a weak heartbeat. Some of you know this story. When I was in college, I was about a junior, and I thought I was pretty special. I was the BMOC. You know that phrase? BMOC? Unfortunately, some of you know that phrase, big man on campus. Yeah, that was me. And one day, I was walking up a flight of stairs. You think that's funny? Huh? There's like nervous laughter going on. Like, who's going to tell him he's not that cool? 
Well, God did, actually. God humbled me. I thought I was pretty special until one day I was walking up a flight of stairs in the academic building, and I was very winded. I, I couldn't make it up the next step, and I had to stop and lean against the railing of the steps. And I finally got to the top of the steps, and I was so tired I had to lean over and, and catch my breath. I was seeing stars. A couple of days later, I was driving in my car, and fortunately I had a stick shift, and I was in neutral at a stoplight, and I totally blacked out. That's when I realized I should probably go to the emergency room. So I did, and I remember, I'll never forget it, the medical person holding a stethoscope up to my chest, 20 years old. Suddenly his eyes grew really wide, and he said, we need a stretcher in here now. Long story short, I had chronic atrial fibrillation. And for the whole first half of my 20s, I had to deal with that, first with medicine, but then with two operations. And by God's grace, I've had a strong heartbeat ever since that second operation. I know what it's like. I know the difference between having weakness in my inner being. It's a terrible feeling. Some of you have had AFib. I've prayed with many of you over this. You know what it's like not to be able to walk a flight of stairs. It's scary. And then to have a strong heartbeat, you know that you have that, that confidence you can face what's before you. Well, this is a metaphor here for the church. Look what God is giving to us, that you may be strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being. That's why I say it's the heartbeat of our church. It's the Holy Spirit. We're not relying on some weak, pathetic, worldly power. We're relying on the Holy Spirit power. You know what it says in Romans 8, verse 11? It says the very same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is at work in you, in y'all. It's at work within us, church. That's the power we have access to. Why are we messing around with worldly power, thinking that's how we're going to advance the kingdom? We have access to resurrection power, Holy Spirit power. It's the heartbeat. It's the engine of our church. For what purpose? Why does he fill us up with this kind of power as a church? What's he doing in our midst? Let's continue to read. We'll pick up again. In verse 17, so that, it says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's, this is pretty amazing, church. He's giving us strength just to comprehend something. <laughs> we're so weak on our own. We're so human in our flesh. He has to strengthen us. He has to give us power in order to comprehend something as amazing and profound as the bigness of His love, rooted and grounded in love, it says, in order to have strength to comprehend. I picture when I read this, a tree in all its fullness, roots under the soil, trunk and leaves and branches above the soil, rooted and grounded in the love of God, it says. This is the foundation of our church, rooted and grounded in love. In order to have strength, picture a nice big strong tree trunk, in order to have strength to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth. These are the branches. 
It's rooted and grounded in love in order to reach the high heights of God's love. Church, we will only be as we will only understand the heights of God's love insofar as we are rooted in God's love by his power, by his strength. You see the tree that Paul is painting for us here? I normally think of rooted and grounded and comprehending great things as two different things, two different types of intelligence, maybe. I think about this because I have two children who think so differently from each other. One is very grounded, very on-the-ground intelligence, and one is very cerebral. My daughter, Eva, she's the one with the feet planted firmly on the ground. She has this amazing ability, this amazing mind. She has a running inventory of every object in the house. <laughs> Say, hey, I need the yellow Sharpie. Has anyone seen the yellow Sharpie? Ooh, Eva jumps up. She runs off into the other room. She picks up a pile of papers and toys and ribbons, and she comes out with the yellow Sharpie and comes running back. I'm, I'm like, how did you know where that was? Do you know where every object in the house is? On the other hand, Riley, he's not on the ground intelligence at all. He can be standing in front of an open refrigerator looking for the milk that's right here in front of his nose. He can't find it. He's thinking about something. He's like, where's Riley? Nine miles above planet Earth. He's thinking about some fantastical. He's got some pretty profound philosophy coming out of this kid. Well, here it says, in the church, we get both collectively in the fullness of God, the fullness of his design, all of us, all the Rileys and Evas among us, we are rooted in the love of God on the ground in order that we might have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of God. It takes all of us collectively as a church to understand and receive and embody and display the love of Christ. Interestingly, though, I'm not sure Paul's actually speaking in botanical metaphor here. I'm not sure he's showing us a tree. Commentators seem to think that when he talks about the breadth and length and height and depth, he's actually talking in architectural terms. And he's wondering with the church as he prays for them, how shall we measure ourselves as a church? Remember, it's that dwelling place to receive the, the indwelling of God like those stones of the temple. It's like he's pulled out his architecture's measuring tape and he's beginning to measure the church by measuring the love of God, the multidimensional, three-dimensional love of God. I love this time of year because I have a great view of this church building. Whenever I drive up Stanwich Road, because the leaves haven't grown yet on the trees, now listen, I want those leaves to grow as much as anybody, but I do love this time of year because I can see right through the branches in the morning when I drive up Stanwich Road after dropping the kids off from school, I see the sunlight hitting our steeple. It's beautiful. <coughs> and that makes me realize that there was a time not so long ago in our church history when we built this building and we had to ask ourselves with the architect and with the field access ratio and all that stuff, we had to ask ourselves, how big do we want our church to be? <coughs> I know that design had to be made. I live next to the old sanctuary around the corner. It's hilarious going in there. It's so tiny. And I know that we had to ask the question here, how big do we want our church to be? You know, in some sense, we're still asking that right now. We've already built this building, but we have people, we make up the church, and we're asking ourselves, how big do we want to be? How many services should we have? How many campuses should we have? How do we fill empty pews at certain services? How big do we want to be? Well, the answer 
is right here in the text. How big should we be? We should be as big as the love of God. That's how big our church should be. That's how we ought to measure ourselves, by the bigness of the love of God, not with necessarily things like architectural drawings and size of services and campuses, but by the love of God. Consider the size, consider the bigness of the love of God, how broad or wide it is, how long it is, how high it is, and how deep it is. How wide is the love of God? Hmm. It's like a wide, wide river. You ever stood on the banks of a wide river. You can barely see the other side. It's like a wide river, wide enough to wash away all our sins. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. I used to struggle with that verse a little bit because I thought it was kind of like the uh, sweeping sin under the rug and letting love cover it. But now I realize love covering a multitude of sins is like that wide river washing away, dealing with, taking away all of our sin and our brokenness. That's how wide the love of God is. How long? How long is the love of God? Psalm 103 verse 17 says, Your steadfast love, O Lord, is from everlasting to everlasting. Do you ever wonder if God's love is going to run out on us? There's a sin so big and so bad that if you do it, he might stop loving you. No. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. His love was there before we were even born. His love will be going on long after we are with him in paradise. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. You know that children's book, I Love You to the Moon and Back? That's nothing compared to the love, the everlasting love of God. That's how long the love of God is. It's as wide as a wide river, and it goes from everlasting to everlasting. Now, how high? How high is the love of God? Psalm 36 says, Your love, O Lord, stretches to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the tallest mountain. That's how high the love of God is. If you, if you went around scooping up little samples of God's love all over the place and put them in a pile, that pile would be Mount Everest. That's how high the love of God is. It's like the tallest mountain. It stretches to the heavens. Who can comprehend the height of the love of God? Now how deep? How deep is the love of God? How deeply has he loved us? Consider the descent of our Lord. Consider the depth of the plunge of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and to be exploited. But he emptied himself, and he took on the very form of a servant, and being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's how deep the love of God is, that Jesus would go from the throne of the universe down to our dusty planet, down to the depths of a terrible crucifixion. That's how deep the love of God is. How wide? How long? How high? How deep? You know, I'm not sure Paul's using a tree metaphor. I'm not even sure he's using architecture anymore. Maybe he's just showing us the cross. How wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ never more embodied than in the death of Jesus Christ. 
How big should our church be? We should measure ourselves with the immeasurable love of God. Insofar as we reflect the love of Christ, we will be a healthy church. We will be filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll be filled with resurrection power. We'll have strength to comprehend with all the saints the amazing love of God. We will be rooted and grounded in the love of God. That's what makes us a church. This is all right here in the pastoral prayer. So I hope we keep praying for each other. Keep asking, Lord, replace my weak inner man, our weak inner being as a church. Any ways, God, that we reach for worldly power, which is like an irregularly beating heart, and fill us, God, with your resurrection power. May that be our engine, our heartbeat, that drives our church, and may we measure ourselves by your love. Paul concludes his prayer with a simple benediction. It's a little bit of an encapsulation of the whole prayer that he's just prayed. I want to offer this benediction just to us right now as a church, to y'all, to all of us. Don't think about this individually now. Think about it as, as a word, as a benediction, as a blessing to us as a church. Just receive this, church body, through the Holy Spirit, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.